Well, here we are on this night after what everyone is calling an historic election. You may have come tonight wondering, is Rick going to address this? Maybe a little. Perhaps more on Sunday, actually. Because what we're going to be talking about Sunday lends itself, I think, profoundly to what we have seen take place in our country. So, some things I'm just going to say. But tonight, tonight we get into the heart of this letter. And it may not be what you thought. If you've ever read through 2 Corinthians before, it may not be the passage. It's not necessarily the go-to that, that people might think of. But as I have read through this, I keep coming back to this place in, in chapter 6 and 7, kind of together, the, the very personal reason why Paul sent this letter to Corinth in the first place, which gives it tremendous heart. I told you when we first opened this up that it's considered by many to be Paul's most personal letter. More so than any other because he really bears his heart in, in talking to the people in this church. Really kind of opens him up, makes himself vulnerable in a way that we don't see as much in the other letters of Paul. And, and so, this part is very personal. There's another reason he sent the letter. We'll get to that in a later study, perhaps next week. A very practical reason. In fact, if chapters 6 and 7 are the personal reason, chapters 8 and 9 are the practical reason for sending this letter. But one does not deny the other. Both are significant. Both are reason enough to send this letter. But what I love about chapter 6 and 7 is that the love of Christ comes through the apostles so clearly here in very moving ways. And in fact, what we understand, and we're going to pick it up about midway through, about verse 11, I think, in chapter 6 is where we'll start. But when we pick it up there, what we begin to see is that it was godly love all along that caused the apostle Paul to write even some of the difficult letters that he wrote to Corinth. To have some of the troubling interactions that he had with them. There was contention here, and we've been over that since we started in 1 Corinthians. Contention between the church at Corinth and the Apostle Paul. A kind of tug of war of authority and, and wisdom and, and who had the right to say what and do what. And it's, it's been a real push and pull. But there's a reason Paul took the stand that he did, the very strong stand, and said some of the very firm things that he said, even things we don't have record of. Because as Paul declared, and will declare again tonight, I wrote you that other letter, we've called it the lost letter, we don't have the letter of Paul, the third letter probably, that he says was harsh. In fact, so harsh, Paul felt bad after he sent it. Kind of wished he hadn't. You'll see that tonight. But the reason for all of that, what motivated Paul's interactions with the church at Corinth, was love. It was always love. Even parental love, to a degree. For he'll declare tonight that he saw them as children of his. Now, I don't know if we can say the same thing about the now-finished election. That it was an election motivated by love. You all know by now, President-elect Donald J. Trump will be the 45th President of the United States. Stunning. Because no one saw it coming. Even supporters went into... I mean, I'll tell you what. My study this morning changed from what it was yesterday. Very different approach as I came into the office today. But in his acceptance speech late last night, if you stayed up for it, Donald Trump sought to begin the process of healing. Actually, early this morning, yeah. Same idea. For me, night is dark. So early this morning, yeah, he he sought to say things to try and bring about healing. And and it's rather remarkable politics, you know, that you can throw mud in someone's face one minute and the next minute say, hey, let's be buddies. But that's American politics. I don't like it. But it's the way of the world. It is not the way of Jesus. Never has been. But as he sought to do that, I, I kept thinking, man... It's not going to be easy. 
to come into the presidency, uh, the one of the least liked president-elects in history, at least modern history, and it would have been either way, you know that. Whoever was elected was going to come in as a very unliked, unpopular person. And to try and unite a country that is so divided over the issues, over the attitudes, over perspectives on how things ought to be done. And with the election now over, you all know that these divisions run very deep in America. In fact, yesterday morning, the verse that kept coming to my mind again and again, it's one I've shared many times here, Matthew 24, verse 12, where Jesus said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. I I hear those words, those very true words of Jesus spoken, describing the time of the end. Describing the last days. And I, I sense, I see them playing out. In fact, when Jesus says that, I think downward spiral. As lawlessness is increased, lawlessness increases lovelessness, which increases lawlessness, which increases lovelessness, and down we go. I'm not concerned so much with global warming, but I am concerned with global cooling. Because it seems to be getting colder and colder and colder. What is the answer to such a negative prospect in this world? And how do we, as followers of Jesus Christ, turn that tide or at least approach that, respond to that that coldness, that lovelessness, that lawlessness? Chapter 6, verse 11. Paul says to the church at Corinth, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Our heart is open wide to you, open wide to us also. You see, at least some at the church in Corinth were restrained by their own affections. What does that mean? Well, the word affections there is literally guts. They were restrained by their own guts. The word we have seen before in previous studies, it's a great word in the Greek, one of mine and Cheryl's favorites, splachnon, and it means bowels. You are restrained by your own bowels, is what he says. Now you might think that's a little odd. I don't think I would phrase something like that. No, you probably wouldn't say, you know, I bowel someone. You know, I heart. We use the heart. We talk about the heart. But Greek culture saw the bowels, the stomach, this area as the seat of emotion. And they were on to something because you don't get butterflies in your heart. You know, you get them in your stomach. You feel things in your stomach when you're worried, when you're upset, when you're angry. It's not necessarily your heart is thudding, but your stomach gets queasy. And so, again, the Greeks nailed it. Splachnon, the the word for guts, for bowels, but also for affection, agony, concern, even compassion. And in fact, with Jesus, Matthew 9.36, we're told seeing the people, He felt compassion. Splachnizomai. I love it. Splachnizomai. It's so easy to think of. You think bowels, just think splach. He felt compassion for the people because he saw that they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. I I know how that feels. I'll tell you one thing about this election. A lot of people voted because they felt like sheep without a shepherd. And it directed certain votes. Again, more about that on Sunday. But... It was compassion, it was splachnon that caused Jesus to literally open himself up to humanity. It was the love of God that caused Jesus to come in the first place for God so loved the world. And so motivated by love, Jesus opened up. The danger is when you open up your heart to other people as Jesus did, they may crucify you for it. And as a Christian, sometimes I feel like I walk that line. 
How vulnerable am I willing to be for the sake of the gospel? How much am I willing to open my heart knowing, as many of you have experienced, that even in Christian circles, when you open your heart, sometimes it can get ripped out. Sometimes it can get stomped on. Sometimes it can get brutalized, whether other people intend to do it or not. The amount of hurt that happens in church settings is tragic. So people say, well, then I don't want to open my heart at all. Paul, after going through this mess with Corinth, says, we have opened our hearts to you. Now open your hearts to us. And he attributes here the tension between them to their restrained affections, to them keeping closed off to Paul. They have closed their hearts. They are not open to him. They have restrained their slognon. They've restrained their feelings. Not trusting. The cause of the conflict came down to one basic thing in Corinth. I would call it the direction of their affection. And the direction of their affection, uh, for some it was inward and arrogant. Who are you, Paul? We are wise, you are not. And so the affection was directed inward. Others had different allegiances. There was the Apollos Alliance, you know, the Cephas clique. And their affections were directed to a person or a personality rather than to Jesus, which would have opened their arms to anyone coming in the name of Christ, including Paul. Some were still directing their affections back to the pagan temples or to pagan relationships and friendships. Paul says you've got to redirect your affection. Open wide your hearts to us. He extends to them in this couple or three verses the olive branch of grace knowing that there were still some in Corinth who were reluctant to take it. And so he says to them, and I love it, our heart is opened wide. Now he couldn't say that if he hadn't said the things he he did in the beginning of 1 Corinthians and then on into 2 Corinthians where he really showed his vulnerability. Where he revealed, man, when I came to you, I came in weakness and fear and trembling. Now you don't say that if you're trying to shore up your apostleship. But Paul was honest and open. We opened up our hearts to you. And he declares to them that he has always loved them. That the reason he sent difficult letters and had difficult communications is because he loved them so much. Proverbs 16.23 says, The heart heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. A wise heart is going to bring sweetness from the lips. Remember, know this, Jesus' people are not out to win arguments. We are seeking to win hearts. And that's what Paul has been doing with Corinth. Through the good, the bad, and the ugly, he has been trying to reach their hearts, to soften their hearts, to show them the love of Christ. And sometimes the love of Christ is demanding. Sometimes the love of Christ is difficult. Because it's real love, not the messy stuff of the world. So how do you overcome this? How how would Corinth go about overcoming restrained affections? How do you respond, in other words, when love begins to grow cold? And I encourage you to take all this very personally. Think about it. Are you in a relationship where the love seems to be growing cold? What do you do? How do you respond? When, When you've been hurt... Whether it's by church people or, or non-believing people, doesn't matter. How do you respond when the love is getting cold and hard, number one, with open hearts? And that is not the way of the world. Open hearts. If you're taking notes, that's number one. Jot it down. Open hearts. Paul says, our heart is open wide. He says, Corinth, open wide to us. It's interesting. He uses two words here that are both... Uh, physiological words. Splachnon, meaning the guts, you know, your affections. And then he says, open up the cardia, the heart. Open wide your heart to us. Literally, he says to them, when he says, open wide to us also, he says, enlarge. That's what the word means. 
In other words, enlarge your heart. Hey, man, it worked for McDonald's. It did. For a season, they were supersizing everything. You may remember that. I mean, supersize it was, was the way to go. You pull into the drive-thru. Hey, uh, well, I'd like a quarter pounder meal. Yeah, you want to supersize that? Who says no to more fries and a bigger Coke? I mean, come on. You know, yeah, supersize it. And the whole country was supersizing until <laughs> indie filmmaker Morgan Spurlock came out with his cult documentary classic now that's called Supersize Me. Who's seen Supersize Me? Any of you? Oh, several of you have. I don't recommend it. He filmed himself from February 1st to March 1st of 2003 going to McDonald's and eating every meal at McDonald's every day for one month with one basic rule. If they said, do you want to supersize it? He had to say yes. And then he had to complete, finish the entire meal. Talk about Splock 9. <laughs> Among other striking physical effects, Spurlock gained 24 pounds in one month. 24 pounds. And it took him another 14 months to lose those 24 pounds on a purely vegan diet. So, <laughs> McDonald's saw this, responded to it. Supersize went the way of the dodo. In fact, what's worse is now today's McDonald's Happy Meals now have a, a, a tiny little box of half fries and, and a skeevy little bag of like three to four tasteless apples. That's what the kids get now, and I'm offended. That's not happy. <laughs> Nothing happy about that meal. Isn't that exactly what happens when people open wide their hearts, supersize their affections, isn't that the fear? What do you mean? People pull back. As McDonald's pulled back. Oh no! Everything's being supersized. Everybody's going to die because McDonald's is supersizing. You know what? I don't know anybody but Morgan Spurlock who ate at McDonald's three times a day for a month. If you're doing that, you got different issues. You probably need counseling. But when we open wide the heart, suddenly, suddenly we get fearful and it closes down so quickly. Or perhaps something happens. Maybe it's not an independent documentary film. Maybe instead it's someone taking you the wrong way. Or someone offended at, at your honesty. Or, or someone coming at you and your guard is down. And so some people say, man, i got to back off of the church. I tried supersizing, i got to back off of the church. It's, it's just too difficult. Some will say to you, don't come on so strong, man. You're always Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Back off a little, man. And some fear if I try to live with an open-hearted, supersized faith, I might end up with things like afflictions, hardships, Distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, sleeplessness, hunger. Just like Paul described of himself in verse 5. Things may go bad for me if I am too open. So i got to remain guarded. Some people say, well, but, but what about Jesus? Wasn't He guarded? I think I read that somewhere. You did. John chapter 2, verse 24. On his part, he was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So John says, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was guarded. Jesus did not let everybody in. He guarded his heart. He was careful. He restrained his affections. But he had to. He had to restrain his affections to measure his time. He knew how long he had. John's clear about that. He knew his exact time. John chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew the time. Always aware of how long he had. So at the beginning of his ministry, he was more cautious, more careful. You see early on him telling people that he's healed, tell no one about this. Just go show yourself to the priest for the proper offering. Don't talk about this. Don't share this. Don't let this out. Guarding the heart because he had to. But that's not where he ended up. In fact, when we get down toward the end of his life, he was far more open even with his enemies. 
He opened wide his heart, especially in that last week. His heart was wide open for all to see exactly who he was. Matthew 26.63 says, The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, literally, You said it. You have said it. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus, what are you doing? Don't you know in this trial that is it? If you claim to be one with God, you're out of here? Why now would you open up your heart and disclose such amazing truth? It's only going to get you killed. Exactly. John chapter 18. It wasn't just to the Jewish leaders. To the Roman leader Pilate, who thought he had the power in his hand. Pilate said, so you are a king? And Jesus said, you say correctly that I'm a king. For this reason I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate, you know the story, handed Jesus over to be crucified. Even as the Jewish leaders were stirring up the rabble to cry out, crucify him. And Jesus went down. Why? Because he opened his heart. Wait a minute, Rick. On the one hand, you're telling us we ought to open our hearts. But you're giving us all this negative info about opening up the heart. That if we do it, we could be crucified or persecuted or hurt badly by it. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Paul opened up his heart and he got reamed. Jesus opened up his heart and he was crucified. So why did they do it? Listen. The only way, the only way to save a heart is to open it. And the only way that I know, the only thing that can open a heart is an open heart. Four words. Open hearts, open hearts. Open hearts, open hearts. Now, some of you may be sitting here tonight going, "Uh uh-uh, I've tried to open my heart and I've just had it slammed time and time again. And I would say to you, and I know what I'm saying here, open it again. But I may get bruised again. Yeah, you may open it again. Well, how many times am I supposed to open my heart and get it beat up? How about 70 times 7 and then let's talk some more. Man, it sounds like a recipe for pain and hardship and affliction. Exactly, it is. I'm not mincing words here. I mean, I hope you understand. I'm saying the only way to open a heart is to open your heart. But if you open your heart, you're going to get hurt. It's going to happen. Well, I don't like the sound of that at all. Thanks a lot, Rick. It's very helpful. Open hearts, eventually, open hearts. What if they don't? Well, then, as I said Sunday morning, you're in the same position as Jesus is right now. Who opened his heart, was crucified for it, and there are still people today who will not open their hearts to him. So, Worst case scenario, if the bruisings come, it just makes you more like Him. Best case scenario, ultimately, your soft heart, your open heart, may in fact open another person's heart. I don't know of any other way. A chisel doesn't do it. A hammer doesn't do it. Banging someone over the head with a Bible doesn't do it. But an open heart opens hearts. And that means intimacy, it means honesty, and it means vulnerability. But now Paul seems to say something that completely counters that. Open wide to us. And then he says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Uh, Real quickly, do you remember Paul calling us the temple of the living God before? In the first letter to Corinth, he said it twice. 
Once he's talking about the church altogether being the temple of the Lord, and the other time he's talking about you individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's referring, I believe, to both here. We, and, and, and we collectively and individually, we are a temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul, on the one hand, you're saying open up hearts. And if you're understanding me correctly, I am saying for us to reach non-believers, as well as to love hardened believers... We need to open up our hearts. But then Paul says, don't be bound together with non-believers. So am I supposed to open my heart to someone or not? What's the deal? Listen, Paul is beautifully balancing open hearts with, number two, equal yokes. Equal yokes. He paints, first of all, a collage here of Older Testament promises, Hebrew promises uh, from Exodus 29 and Leviticus 26 and Isaiah 52. He's just drawing these verses out of the Hebrew Scriptures to explain the heart health of God's people. And here's the balance, and this is so vital. Open your heart. Be willing. Take the risk. It's vulnerable. It's dangerous. It could get you hurt. Open your heart. But on the other side of that, make sure you are also equally yoked. That is, you are bound together with believers. So that if you're taking the hits here, you're also receiving the healing here. If it's hard over there, when you gather, when you're with other people of faith in Jesus Christ, that's where the healing and the strength continues to flow. Open hearts and equal yokes. Open hearts evangelistically. Equal yokes spiritually. Now this word, this phrase, bound together, is heterozugeo. And I I think bound together is the best uh, translation that we have. So the NASB really nailed this one. The King James translation more commonly reads, don't be unequally yoked. Which is why I say we need equal yokes. Equal yoking. Now the reason why is because Paul's implication here is based on Torah law. He's drawing off of the Torah, all of these verses. But this idea of do not be bound together with unbelievers comes straight out of Jewish law. Where? Deuteronomy 22, verse 9. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed or all the produce of the seed which you have sown, and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. God says, here's just some good planting tips for you, some gardening rules. Don't mix your seed. Okay? And then he says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Apparently the oxen and the donkeys don't get along. I don't know. He says, you shall not wear a material mixed of wool and linen together. I mean, these are just weird laws, right? You read that and say, what's the deal, Lord? I can't like line up my, my carrots along with my celery. I can't plant together. Or I can't if I only have two animals and i got to get the work done. I can't get the ox and the donkey to walk together. Wool and linen. Anybody willing a, wearing a wool linen blend tonight? Because if you are, you're in violation of Torah. <laughs> what are you talking about, Lord? He is painting a picture in Israel of unequal yoking. He's painting a picture of holiness. Don't mix things that shouldn't be mixed. Holiness comes when you are equally yoked as opposed to unequally bound. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. It's unequal. It doesn't work. Now, don't think unequal in terms of you're better and they're worse. No, it's that you're going one direction and they are going another Now, oftentimes, Christians immediately relate this to marriage. Don't be unequally yoked. And we think, well, that's a marriage verse right there. He's not talking about marriage. I mean, you can apply it there, sure. And I think for young people considering marriage, and even when Cheryl and I talk to our own kids, we we drive this point home, you want to be equally yoked. You want to be bound with a believer because it's more difficult, much more difficult otherwise. 
But it's not just marriage he's talking about. He's talking about any kind of connection, any partnership, any fellowship, any harmony, any commonality that turns the direction of your affection away from Jesus. That's unequal yoking. It can be a business partner. You're a believer. He's not or she's not. And you feel yourself drawn away. It can be it can be a marriage. It could be a project that you're working on. It could be a, a social relationship or friendship. You want to go this way in your affection for Jesus, but they are not going that way, and you're drawn away. Someone's going to win that battle. Someone's going to lead in that unequal yoking. And Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That is as sure as the law of thermodynamics. I mean, it happens. So, we're supposed to have open hearts, but we're not supposed to be bound together with unbelievers. Should we then have nothing to do with Gentiles? See, that's what the Jews thought. And over the years, especially after Babylon, in those 500 years between 586 B.C. and when the... uh, Sorry, the 70 years... They came back in the land, and then in those 400 years after that experience, prior to Jesus coming, the Jews became more and more internal, closed off more and more from the world. They were saying, we should not mix with the Gentile or those filthy Samaritans. So you had the pure Jews. The Samaritans were the half-bloods. And then there's the Gentiles who were worse. And, And you know, a lot of the Jewish people in Jesus' day wouldn't even walk on the same street with a Gentile would not pass through Samaria. They would have to go the long way around so as not to be defiled. Some Jewish people took the law of God that way not to be bound together with unbelievers. It was a misapplication of holiness both in Israel and I would add in the church. Because some churches take this concept of not being bound together with unbelievers and close the doors and shut down to the outside world, to the non-believing world. So what do we do? Do we do nothing with the non-believer and close off the heart? But you said open the heart. Open the heart, but have equal yokes. How do we do that? Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 5.9, let me repeat this to you. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Paul never said, stop associating with non-believers. He said, I didn't mean that or with covetous or with swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You'd all have to move to an island somewhere. I'm not talking about that. He says, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. So Paul drew the line of judgment in the church. He said, if if you've got someone in the church who is redirecting your affection away from Jesus, that's the person you avoid. Don't be unequally yoked. But maintain that open heart, especially to a lost world. Do not be bound. It doesn't mean don't associate or interact. It simply means don't lose your direction. The oxen and the donkey walking side by side, you've got a strong oxen, guess which way the donkey is going to start going. I'm not saying we're donkeys. But we will be drawn away. And that is Paul's concern. I love Ezekiel's vision of heaven. I've mentioned it recently. Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10. When he gets these, these heavenly visions of the cherubim, and his description of the cherubim are literally frightening. You know, four faces, eyes all over the wings. And, and they're just amazing creatures of worship to God. But Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 1.12, wherever the Spirit was about to go, they would go. Turning as they went. Orderly. But man, if the Spirit moved to the right, the cherubim moved to the right. And if the Spirit went left, the cherubim went left. That's how I want to be. I want to be so equally yoked with fellow believers that like the cherubim, when the Spirit goes left, we all go left. When the Spirit goes straight forward, we all go straight forward. 
in alignment with the Spirit of God and equally yoked with, un, with each other, with believers. So that we can have open hearts for the world and even if we get bruised, okay, but we equally yoke up here. And we find our strength here and our encouragement here. And it makes the burden even heavier upon us to be believers who love each other and don't stomp on each other. And that's not always easy to do. But it's vital. John 3.8 says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Open hearts and equal yokes. And, all, and those two things together develop number three. Clean spirits. Clean spirits. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. you ever feel yucky at the end of the day? Like you walk in the door and you just feel gross. You feel disgusted or repulsed by what you've seen or heard or felt or even by what you've done. You know, if you're, if you're dirty in the flesh, take a shower, man. But what do you do when the Spirit is dirty? What do you do when the Spirit doesn't feel clean? When you just kind of... Blah. I remember Cheryl and I went to a youth pastor's conference years ago in Las Vegas. <laughs> Truly, I don't know whose idea that was. But it was my first time as an adult in Vegas. I had gone as a child with my parents. Um, didn't really remember it. As an adult, walking down the street, walking down the strip, the Vegas strip, it felt gross. Yeah, I just felt dirty. And I mean spiritually. It was the weirdest thing. I just felt spiritually dirty. And this was in a time early on in my ministry where I really wasn't that turned on to the Spirit. I didn't really get the more spiritual side of our Christianity. I just felt gross. I wanted to go take a spiritual shower. Didn't know how. Let me give you something that will help. Keep your finger here and turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. This psalm is one of my favorites because it is like taking a spiritual shower. What David says, and David is the author of this psalm, and he is speaking as king in Israel, so he makes some very strong pronouncements in it. But walk this through with me. I want to take a side note, a little rabbit trail here just for a second. But Paul, when he says, get clean in flesh and in spirit, flesh is one thing. How do I get clean in spirit? How do I do that? Watch this. Psalm 101, verse 1. He says, I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. Number one way to get the Spirit washed is worship. You can do that in your car. You can come on Wednesday night. You can gather with friends. Have someone bring a guitar or just sing together at the top of your lungs. Make a joyful noise. Some of you do that very well. Worship. Just worship God. It's amazing how spiritually cleansing it is just to be in His presence. We were singing tonight, man, when, when Rachel went into holy, 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 that for me was the moment tonight where I just felt my spirit get clean. I will worship. I, I will sing praises. Worship is key. He says in verse 2, I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Second thing you do to cleanse the Spirit is walk in integrity. Worship and and, and walk with integrity. What does that mean? It just means do do what you say you believe. Don't say it here and do the opposite. Line it up. Which is actually one of the most simple things a follower of Jesus can do. Line it up. I believe this. Does my life reflect what I claim to believe? If it does, great. I'm lined up. I'm walking in integrity. If there's mismatched uh, beliefs versus behaviors, man, that's not integrity. Walk in integrity, it washes the Spirit. He goes on. I love verse 3. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. And I'm pretty sure he's talking about Blu-rays. Television. 
Why is there so much immorality in television and in movies? Because the people who produce it are, for, for the most part, not moral. They're not living by a moral compass. Don't be unequally yoked. What does your movie collection say? I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. Now, that can be something as simple as the movies I watch or the shows that I enjoy. Or pornography. Paul, uh, David says, I won't do it. Now, it didn't exist in David's day the way it did. He had to actually go out on the roof of the, of the palace and look for it. <laughs> the story of Bathsheba. You read it. But he found it, and he set something worthless before his eyes. That was an adulterous relationship. Gentlemen especially, although ladies are impacted by this in our country as well, don't set pornography before your eyes. And if you are, if you are in that struggle, and a huge number of men do struggle with pornography, you need to find, first of all, tell your wife, if you're married, If you're not married, and even if you are, you need to find one or two other brothers who you can say, man, I need accountability. I need you to walk with me. I'm going to give you access to my computer, and I'm going to take access to yours. We're going to get some software together so you know exactly where I'm going, and I know exactly where you're going. And if one of us falls, we can lovingly pray for each other and confess and get clean. Do you know how many Christian men sit in churches feeling filthy? Because they have set worthless things before their eyes. And we're talking about getting clean. Cleansing the Spirit. I mean, there are practical answers for all this. He continues on. I would take forever because we could just study Psalm 101 tonight. But he says, number 4, or verse 4, A perverse heart shall not depart from me. I will know no evil. You know what you can do here to cleanse the Spirit? You can will innocence. Worship. Walk in integrity. Set no worthless thing before your eyes. Are you picking up the W's? And number four, will innocence. You do, in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, you do have the ability to say, I will be innocent. That is my determination. What if you fall? Hey, you probably will. But I'll tell you what, those who determine, who will innocence, are going to be a lot more innocent more of the time than those who just let you know let the chips fall where they may. Speaking of Vegas, <laughs> will innocence. I choose to live this way. He says, verse 5, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, and now this is King David talking, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. So welcome the faithful into your life. I'm really having a hard time following Jesus. Look at your surroundings. Who are you walking with? Who are you welcoming in? David says, I'm going to welcome the faithful. My eyes will be upon the faithful of the land. He who walks in a blameless way, that's the person I want to hang out with. Those who are opposite of that, who are arrogant and haughty and prideful, no, no, I don't want to hang out with that. Because that gets on me and my spirit gets dirty. Remember, we're still talking about cleansing the spirit. And finally he says in verse 7, He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. Finally, number six, you want to get clean, deny the wicked. Deny the wicked. Just say no to that stuff. Worship. Walk with integrity. Set no worthless thing before your eyes. Will to be innocent. Welcome the faithful. Deny wickedness. And I would add one more thing. You can start going back to 2 Corinthians now. I would add one more thing to this list of W's. Be sanctified in the Word. The Word of God. Jesus said in John 17, 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Note that. Though Paul would say, don't be bound together with unbelievers, he says, yet open your hearts. And Jesus said, I don't want them out of the world. 
But to keep them, he prayed, from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Jesus prayed, Father, your word is truth. What's marvelous about your decision to continue to show up Wednesday upon Wednesday upon Wednesday, and I speak directly to you Bible students tonight, is that you get two absolutely powerful keys of cleansing every time we gather. You get worship and the Word. You also welcome the faithful, don't you? You're encouraged to will innocence, to deny wickedness, and at least in this place, we're not setting any worthless thing before our eyes because really there's not a whole lot to look at in here. I set nothing worthless. Be sanctified, as Paul says in verse 1, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That will cleanse your spirit every time. I love this word. Verse 2. Are we going to do all of chapter 7, Rick? I don't know, maybe. Verse 2. Make room for us, and here comes intimate Paul again. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Verse 3, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Oh, great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy, even in all our affliction. And so again, Paul restates his open-hearted love for and his confidence in the church at Corinth. And it's wonderful to get here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, having studied all the way back through 1 Corinthians, and all the mess at Corinth, and all the headache that they had to be for Paul, and all the contention between them, and now Paul says, Oh, I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy. And he's in the midst of affliction as he writes this. Life is hard. He's getting beat up for the gospel. He's opened his heart and people are taking punches at it. But he says, Corinth, when I think of you, (laughs) even in all this, I am overjoyed. I am filled with comfort. My confidence in you is huge. And I read that and I thought, you know what? That's absolutely true. Nothing makes the hard work of the gospel sweeter than the fruit that it yields. When you can see people come to faith in Jesus, when you see people growing in their love for Jesus, when you see that kind of fruit on the tree and you have a bad week, the sweet fruit makes the bad week not so bad. It really is encouraging. And that's what Paul's talking about. And Jesus said in John 4.36, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. And that fruit, that good fruit, is every person who comes to faith in Jesus because you simply chose to tell them the gospel. Fruit for life eternal. Jesus says, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Well, Paul Paul is finally seeing this now in Corinth. Verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side. Conflicts without, fears within, but God who comforts the depressed. Note that. Man, you ought to underline that. God who comforts the depressed. If you are ever depressed, that's one of God's names. The comforter of the depressed. If you suffer from, and some do, seasonal affective disorder or or some manner of depression in your life, would you remember here at least tonight and come back to this? God comforts the oppressed, the depressed. And he says, so God who does this, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by (laughs) the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted in you as He reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for Me so that I rejoiced even more. Note, He says, the comfort that came to Him wasn't the elders of Jerusalem. He doesn't say, we were comforted when Peter showed up, that great apostle. I was so comforted when James and John came to just encourage us. Man, those true Christian leaders... He says, Titus, Titus, his, his Greek convert, 
shows up and the word that he brings to Paul is so comforting. And I, I simply mention that kind of as a side note. There's always a Titus somewhere. And there's a Titus who would come and comfort you. Don't miss the comfort of the Titus in your life. Someone who may not be significant, may not be real well known. Oh, we know he has a book in the New Testament now, so obviously he's got a little bit of you know, fame these days. But who's, who's the Titus in your life? Sometimes the greatest comfort of God, it comes from someone least expected. And Titus came to where Paul was, and it so encouraged him. Verse 7, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted, Corinth, in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So I want to add number four. Open hearts, equal yokes, clean spirits, and number four, no regrets. No regrets. Now Paul was waiting to hear from Titus. You may recall that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. He said, When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. Paul comes to Troas and he's waiting. Where's Titus? Why hasn't Titus come? And he continues on. And finally, when Titus does show up in Macedonia, because Paul couldn't even do ministry in Troas, he was so stressed out, he was so worried, he just was not focused. He goes on to Macedonia, and Titus shows up, and it's just like, ah, comfort, joy. Why? Paul was waiting to hear of the response of Corinth to that lost letter. The letter he had written that was a harsh letter, a difficult letter, a painful letter. Paul wrote it, sent it with Titus. Well, let me let you hear from Paul on this because he clearly feared that it would not be received well. Verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. (laughs) You ever do that? You ever drop a note to someone thinking this will set things right, and the moment you walk away you go, oh no, why did I do that? Or leave a message on someone's answer machine, that's the best. And then hang up and wonder, how do I go and turn that off? I've got to erase that. There's an entire Seinfeld episode on that one. And Paul says, that's what happened. I wrote you the letter, sent it with Titus, and the moment Titus is out of sight, Paul's going, I think I went too far. I think maybe that this may be it. They may never invite me back to Corinth. Worse, they may boot out. They may spurn everything I taught them. Oh no! I mean, one little phrase, I did regret it for a while. But, verse 9, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now we're going to talk about that on Sunday because it's too big just to cover in one sitting. But here Paul expresses no regrets. I I regretted it at first until I saw the effect. Until I realized the impact that this letter had. And now, man, I rejoice and I have no regrets for having sent it at all. Sometimes the Lord sends you, encourages you to say something difficult to a brother or sister. And they listen and there's fire in the eyes. And they are upset with you and you walk away and you go, maybe I shouldn't have said it that way. You know, Lord, did I go too far? And you start to regret it. It's called second guessing or what Les likes to call second voice. Where we think we're doing the right thing, but once we've done it, we start to second guess and worry and perhaps start to have regrets. And maybe I shouldn't have said that at all or gone there at all. How do I walk without regret? Let me give you a simple explanation for that. Ephesians 4.15, you speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. 
Colossians 4.6, Paul says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so you will know how you should respond to each person. And this is the great Jesus principle. That we might live lives of open hearts and equal yokes with clean spirits and no regrets. The no regrets aspect of this comes from walking like Jesus, who John said, John 1.18, grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. It's not grace or truth. It's not sometimes grace and sometimes truth. With Jesus, it is always grace and truth. Listen, if you have a hard thing to share with someone, but you're truly sharing it out of love for them, out of splachnon compassion for them, you can share it, do the best that you can to do it in love, and then walk away without regret, because God knows your heart. God knows what He's doing through you. And the way to have an open heart with no regrets is simply that. Speak with grace and truth. Speak the truth in love and let God do the work on the heart. You just make sure if you have a difficult thing to bring, you bring it in love. And that goes for the open heartedness towards lost people as well. We cannot forget when we're sharing the gospel that we're doing it because we truly love the non-believer. We're not trying, you've heard me say this before, we're not trying to win arguments. We're trying to win hearts. And so with open hearts, we bring the gospel. We love people. We share the truth because we love them. They may be offended, but they cannot deny when you have an open heart that you love them. They may say, I I don't want to hear that right now. You say, I know you don't. I've been there. I know how that feels. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable. I just love you too much to let this go. Open hearts. Equal yokes, clean spirits, no regrets. Verse 11. And we'll come back on Sunday to verse 10. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. So whatever Paul wrote, man, it it wrung him out. He says, what vindication for yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. That's huge. Because I don't think they were really innocent. And yet Paul says, but the moment you received the letter and realized the wrong that was going on, you changed. You were indignant, not toward me, but about the wrong. You were sorrowful in it. You were like, no, that we didn't realize. We, we're, we're so sorry. Even to the point of tears. And he says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent, verse 12, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that, get this, that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God, and for this reason we have been comforted. Now you can read that and say, all right, what was the issue? And scholars and commentators come up with all kinds of answers to what the issue was. Who was the offender? And who was the offended? And what was truly going on there? You want to know what the answer is? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the issue was not the issue. Paul makes it very clear here. The issue was not what was going on. The issue was their hearts. The issue was that they understand Paul's heart for them and that they might open their hearts to Him. And so often in our lives, that is the thing. We get all wrapped around the axle over the issue. The issue, my friends, is never the issue. The heart is. Yeah, but she said, but he did, but they don't agree with that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is the heart. What matters is, can a brother and sister find commonality in Jesus? Can we love a believer and a non-believer? Can the believer love the non-believer enough to bring the gospel with love and compassion and grace and truth? The issue is not the issue. The heart is the issue. And in Jesus, we are in the business of, and this is actually number five, fifth and final point, we are in the business of opening hearts. 
opening hearts. Number one was open hearts. But we are about opening hearts. And this is what Paul desired for Corinth. If you look back in a broad overview of these two letters, uh, truly four that we know went out, and, and Paul's trips to Corinth and relationship, first he wanted open hearts to the gospel. Then he, he desired open hearts to sound biblical doctrine as he began to teach them. And then he, he wanted open hearts to obedience to that doctrine, which came of accepting the gospel. And in that obedience, then Paul starts to call for open hearts to repentance. And all for the sake of salvation. Look back up at verse 10 one more time. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret to salvation. And understand that word salvation, soteria, in the Greek, soteria is not just a future thing. That salvation, as far as the Bible describes it, salvation is deliverance right now. Salvation is life now, saved from the old patterns, the old paths, the old conflicts. It's deliverance from the difficulties and the confusions. It's life right now. Yes, it is eternal salvation on into eternity with Jesus. But salvation begins the moment you're born again, you are saved and being saved. Saved eternally and being saved from yourself, from this world, from all of the difficulty that comes with it. Which is why Paul writes in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Which is not to say, work hard so you can be saved. No, you're already saved. Now work out. You're already healthy in Jesus. Now go to the gym. In Jesus. I'm talking spiritually. And he says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And that is a lifestyle of open hearts, opening hearts. That's our calling. Open hearts, open hearts. And Paul says in verse 13, continuing, And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So now not only is it all good with Paul and Corinth, but Titus, he gets swept into the joy of this glorious reconciliation. And he says in verse 14, For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Apparently Paul said, when you go and you take this letter, it's going to be difficult, but I know these people. They'll receive it well. And this will all work out well. And then he sends Titus and Paul goes, Oh no, I hope this works out well. (laughs) And then Titus comes back and says, Oh, it was great. And Titus was comforted and encouraged. And Paul was comforted and encouraged. And now, verse 15, his, that is Titus's affection, abounds all the more toward you. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So how do you open a closed, hard, icy heart? Brothers and sisters, we have got to keep our hearts open for business. We gotta love even when we are spurned. We gotta be gracious even when we are turned against. And forgive when we're not forgiven. And I know how easy these words are just to speak in a Bible study. I also know how profoundly difficult this is in real life. But this is our life. And the more we walk this way with open hearts, the more sanctified we are. And God is doing remarkable things in all of us. Growing us up into Jesus. What if my heart gets pierced? It will. No doubt. Your heart will be pierced. Which is why we need to be equally yoked. Why we need each other. It's why we continually seek clean spirits with no regrets. Because in all of this, what Paul shows us in these two chapters is there's a bigger issue at hand. And that is the business of opening hearts. I began with Jesus' quote, Matthew 24, 12, where he said, because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. 
If Jesus had stopped there, it would be a very depressing statement on the end times. It would be, and that's it. And you're done for. And then it's over. But he goes on and says, but in spite of this, this lawlessness, lovelessness, lawlessness, lovelessness, it just gets colder and colder. But, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And then Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And it is our calling until he raptures us home. And it is a work he's going to continue to do for seven years after that. But the bottom line is, whatever happens to me, whatever happens to you as followers of Jesus in this world, our calling is to have open hearts that will open hearts. Father, I love what Paul taught. I love what he shared, what we see between him and Corinth and how he truly did open up his heart and pour out his feelings for this people. But I also know that what we just read is in a large part the reason Paul was so tormented and afflicted in his life. I know Paul opened his heart and got stomped on. And Father, I think before I say another word, I just need to ask... Lord, for any brother or sister here tonight who has in the past opened up their heart for the sake of the Gospel and literally been sucker punched, Father, I pray that Your Spirit will do a deep healing, a profound healing in the heart. That You will take the flesh that has been wounded or scarred or torn and You will do open heart surgery that creates a soft beating, joyful heart. I pray, Father, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we will learn what it means to come alongside each other, to come around each other, and to be that equal yoking that we need, walking in the right direction. All of our affections and our love pointed to You, Lord Jesus. I pray we will be given the, the gentle reminder of Your Spirit to be a people who are in worship and in Your Word and willing innocence and all the things I said. I don't need to repeat the teaching tonight. But Lord, I just ask that You will work in us these things. Because I know the importance to which You've called us of bringing the Gospel in this world. And I know we can't do it if our hearts are closed off. Father, may the love of Christ compel us to be a people who open our hearts. In the name of Jesus, Amen.